Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Well, hey everyone, I'm Mike. It's lovely to see you all here. How are you all doing? That's fantastic, fantastic. It's wonderful to be with you, worshipping with you all and looking forward to uh, sharing with you uh, the final message for the Not A Fan series. Uh, we ha- if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we have been wrapping it up for a while now, but I do promise this is the last week. All right. We need to have a chat about social media. I remember the first time that I got Facebook was my first year of uni. That tells you how old I am. Um, I doubled in MySpace before that, and if any of you can remember that. And then before that, there was this thing called MSN. Who knows what MSN is? Cool. All right. So there's a few people that are old in the room. Um, I mean, this is in the days of dial-up, right? So dial-up internet, if, you, if you're younger and you don't know what that is, um, it's kind of like you had to connect to the internet to make it work. And um, just to give you an idea of how slow it was, it took a good minute or two to load every page you wanted to read. Uh, it took maybe 30 minutes to an hour to download a, set, a standard MP3 file. Um, and anything bigger than that, just forget about it because it would probably you know, crash halfway through or someone would pick up the phone and cut you off anyway. Um, that's when we had home phones as well. Um, but nowadays, if you're friends with me on any of my social platforms, you'll possibly know that I'm not really the most involved social media user. Um, And that's because I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the stuff. Um, Granted, social media and technology in general have been invaluable of late during COVID times when we needed to be physically distant. And it's meant that my family and I have been able to be in touch virtually face-to-face, but hasn't really been the same. But my struggle lies in the fact that social media has challenged what it means to be social. I don't know, who who would agree with that? And I think it goes deeper than just the ability to connect or to have dialogue with another person or group of people. Social media encourages you to make your life newsworthy. It encourages you to share your highlight reel in a a way that maybe we wouldn't do if we were just engaging face to face. And in the same way, it doesn't encourage you to share your dirty laundry or your lowlights of your life. And I mean, who would want to? It's a social, it's a public kind of forum. We would usually keep these for sharing and trusted relationships one-on-one if we share them at all. Then based on our public profiles, we decide which events we're going to go to. Or at least to say that we're going to go to. 
The more socially conscious will look at the guest list and decide if there are 10 based on who's been invited or who has said they're going. And if not enough people have responded yet, you're kind of like, oh, I don't know whether I want to be the first one. And you might hold off your reply until we can be sure that people we would be happy to socialise with are attending. And we may even hold off our response until the last minute to be sure that there is not some better offer that comes up right at the last second that will be more valuable for us to spend our social life doing. So over the last three weeks, we've been talking about the difference between being a fan of something as opposed to being a follower. And I want to ask, is this social media kind of following, you know, whether it be liking a business page on Facebook, following a branded account or social influencer on Instagram or subscribing to a YouTube channel, is that kind of following damaging our understanding of Jesus' call to follow him? I mean, don't get me wrong, I know socialising is complicated. I am an introvert, I get it. But we have to be constantly asking these questions of our society to ensure that we can be really sure that we haven't been misled by it. And as we move through tonight, I'm sure that we'll be able to identify some of the social constructs in tonight's passage as well. But before we jump in, let me pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we recognise your presence here in this place tonight and we want to be open to what you have to say to us. We thank you for the way that you invite us with love and grace, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. But we pray as we look at this challenging parable that you would guide us, you would teach us and you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles there, won't you open to Luke chapter 14, uh, verse 15. If you don't, that will be on the screen for you to follow along with. It's entitled, The Parable of the Great Banquet. When one of those at the ter- table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you had ordered has already been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste 
of my banquet. Now the opening passage of this, uh, this verse of this passage is a response from an unnamed person to something they've heard. So I just want to quickly set the scene for us. In Luke 14, we find Jesus going to eat in the house of a Pharisee on the Sabbath. Now, anytime you get those three things in the same sentence, you know something's going to go down. And it does, because there is a man suffering from a condition called dropsy, which is like an abnormal swelling of the body. So Jesus asked the Pharisees who were gathered there if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And now this is the fifth time in Luke's Gospel that we see Jesus challenging the Pharisees on on the Sabbath. So you could imagine the Pharisees being like, well, what are you asking us for? Because we know you're going to do it anyway, so just get it over with. And Jesus heals the man and challenges them that maybe they would do the same thing, given the example of a child or ox falling into a well on the Sabbath day. Then as the guests were being called around the table, Jesus notices that the guests start filling the table from the honourable seats to the least. So Jesus addresses them with a parable on humility, saying that when they're invited to a feast, they should choose the lower place so that the host could come and move them to a better seat, as opposed to being humiliated when someone asks them to move down, when someone more honourable comes. And as if he hasn't created enough controversy already, Jesus then turns to the host of the meal, probably the Pharisee who invited Jesus in the first place, and rebukes him because of the people that he's invited. He says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do... They may invite you back and repay you. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What a dinner guest Jesus is being. Wouldn't you like to have him around? Not only is he challenging the Pharisees and teachers of the law and their understanding of the law and telling them how they should act. But he's also telling the host off who's invited him in the first place. Almost at a last-ditch effort to restore calm and to diffuse the situation, an unnamed guest says this, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now I can imagine that there might have been a few amens around the table after this statement. It sounds very much like Jesus, actually, doesn't it? Very Beatitude-like. But Jesus knows the hearts of the Pharisee. He knows that they still don't get his teaching, still don't quite understand what he's been getting at this whole time. And I want to have a look at the following great banquet parable that we read earlier from a couple of angles and see how we go bringing all those strands together at the end. So first thing, in Jesus' day, the social construct at work was one of honour and shame. And Jesus tells the parable of the great banquet because these would have been commonplace at the time. A prominent or wealthy person in the community would hold a great feast and this would promote their social status in the community. 
They then sought to invite those of similar social standing so that they wouldn't be shamed to participate in the feast. An initial invitation would be sent out, one that would need to be RSVP'd to, to ensure that the host would have enough food for his guests. Then the host servant would be sent out again to inform the guests when the feast was ready. And on the receiving side of things, it was honourable to be seen at one of these feasts. If you got an invite, it was like you were considered to be a social insider. You would likely to be able to repay the host in either like an expensive gift or be able to have him around later on at another fancy banquet. However, if you didn't get an invite, you were likely to be an outcast, deemed to be shameful for the host to invite. But if you were invited and you declined, especially at the second round, that was considered shameful upon yourself and also heaped shame on the host. So as we read in verse 18 that all alike began to make excuses. The Pharisees would have understood the great shame that would have been brought upon the host. Now, there weren't fridges and freezers in those days, so the host couldn't have just put the food away and rescheduled for another time. It was either the food was going to be eaten or it would spoil. But what would have been shocking to the Pharisees is that the host then sent his servant out to gather the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. He sent him out not once, but two times because the house wasn't full after the first round. The second time he was sent far, likely outside the city walls, to compel people to come in. That's probably because the people he was inviting had no idea who this host was. So he said to compel them to come into my house so that the house may be full. At this point, it's getting clearer that this feast is a representation of a heavenly feast. As an unnamed guest refers to earlier, a feast eaten in the kingdom of God. Jesus is critiquing the honour-shame culture here and pointing out that in the Pharisees' desire for honour, they've actually forgotten the poor. The host in the parable throws out the honour-shame construct, which was an application of Jesus' earlier rebuke of the host, and is overcome with generosity towards those who cannot repay him. In doing so, he has created an event that those who are stuck in the honour-shame construct would not want to be a part of. Imagine if I'd gotten up here tonight and said that I want each of you to go out of here. and I want you to find that homeless person who's trying to stay warm out the back of the church Bring in that guy who's sitting on the step outside with a cigarette in hand and a bottle of alcohol between his legs. Bring in the lady who's struggling to make ends meet and making it out after making it out of an abusive relationship. The driver with road rage on the roundabout out there. The young person who's struggling with depression and wondering if it's worth another day. The child who's constantly bullied at school. The elderly man who's just been given a few weeks to live. Would you bring them? Would you stay here with them if you did? 
Would you share a meal with them after, if we could? The feelings that are going on within you and the second-guessing and all that kind of stuff is what Jesus is addressing. You see, Jesus redefines what it means to be social. He redefines what it means to be social. While we do not have an honour-shame culture, it would probably be fair to say that our equivalent is something like a self-fulfilment and self-denial culture. Combing through guest lists before parties, reading into wedding seat arrangements, and ultimately our decision to attend or not to attend an event is feeding our self-fulfilment or self-denial. Living in either of these social constructs distances us from integrity. It allows us to pick and choose which parts of something we think will be fulfilling while making excuses for those that we think aren't. And this is something that a fan does. You see how quickly some footy fans ditch their association to their team as if they're not winning. Or how quickly we distance ourselves from a previously revered public figure when they mess up. But being a follower, especially in the case of following Jesus, is about removing ourselves from these social constructs and surrendering our lives to find true fulfilment in him and his mission. Social media may have challenged what we think it is to be social, but Jesus redefines what it means to be social, calling us to love, include and show generosity to all people. Well, let's have a look at the excuses that were given. We are given three, but they're representative of all of the excuses because actually no one really showed up to this thing. So we can assume that the others were probably along the same lines. And at a first glance, they look pretty weak, don't they? I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Well, I mean, the field's not going to grow your legs and run away. Like, surely they can eat and run and go and do that later. I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I need to try them out. Again, we tied up the oxen and the field to be ploughed are likely to be there after the mule as well. I just got married. Possibly the only slightly decent excuse since the wife wife would uh, likely have not been invited to this meal. You see, if those invited had been asked to go to war... Deuteronomy says that these excuses would have been perfectly acceptable for them to stay behind and not go to that war. But as excuses not to go to a meal, not to go to a banquet, they were pretty laughable. If this banquet is representing a resurrection banquet or a feast in the kingdom of God, then of course the excuses are pitiful. However, just like some lame excuses we might have for not going to events that we don't want to go to, we also make excuses to Jesus too, don't we? We say that after we finish this assignment, then I'll make time to spend with you. We say that when God provides us a boyfriend or a girlfriend, then we'll recognise that he's there for us and answers our prayers. We say that we'll get around to reading the Bible more later on in life. And maybe we say we'll take Jesus more seriously 
when we've settled down and gotten everything together. And maybe we've been so busy and so distracted that we've forgotten about our relationship with Jesus altogether. The great banquet that we've been invited to is the resurrection. After he was resurrected, Jesus promised to return again. And he expects us to be eagerly waiting for him. Jesus doesn't want our excuses. He wants our full surrender. For those who have excuses, like verse 24 tells us, will not get a taste of my banquet. Jesus challenges us with a new social paradigm in which we share in his resurrection life. Attending the banquet or participating in resurrection life is something that takes more than receiving an invite. It takes more than a one-time RSVP. We must be ready when the banquet is ready. And we need to do whatever we need to do to be ready. Our excuses are keeping us on the sidelines as fans watching and wondering what could be. They are a safe choice in a moment, not wanting to put anything on the line on a whim. But Jesus challenges us to step into how he sees things, to become a follower that gets involved and is rewarded with resurrection life. Now these are two challenging takeaway points by themselves to live, uh, to love include and show generosity to all people and to not keep our excuses from allowing us into resurrection life. But I think if we leave it there, we miss a massive point that Jesus is trying to say. I think Jesus is trying to say that the Pharisees were, in fact, the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And Jesus is trying to tell us through this parable, that we are the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Jesus redefines what it means to be social so that he can socialise with us. Jesus wants relationship with each of us, and he came so that he could do just that. Later on in Luke 19, Jesus is more explicit and he says that he has come to seek and to save the lost. But sometimes we just don't want to be found. One of the things that prevents us from being able to have relationship with Jesus is when we don't recognise our need of him. We can think that if we do enough good things that maybe God will let us into heaven anyway. The Pharisees were certainly good law keepers, but over and over they were told that this is not what Jesus required of them. We seek self-fulfillment in all sorts of places. We try to find it in work, in our own crafted identity, on social media, in who we hang out with, in our families, in how we decide to spend our time. We try, but we don't find it. We look somewhere else. We don't find it. All the while, the ache of unfulfillment is pronounced. 
Do you know that Jesus is all the fulfillment that you need? Jesus is all the fulfillment that you need. Nothing more, nothing less. The kingdom that Jesus is initiating now is populated by the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. It's populated by those who identify with this group and recognise their need for Jesus. While we readily wait for his return, we follow him into loving, caring for and being generous towards those who are physically and spiritually poor, crippled, blind and lame. And as we have seen over the last few weeks in our series, Jesus is not holding back on what it takes when he says, come and follow me. Jacob reminded us in the first week that a fan asked the questions, what do I have to do to get what I want? But Jesus wants followers to discover who he really is. And that takes our full surrender. In the second week, Liam reminded us of the fact that Jesus will return, but we don't know the time or the place. But Jesus has instructed us to be ready. He posed us the question then, how do we want to be found? And John spoke last week of the cost of discipleship or following Jesus, that it's something that requires our all to take out our cross and follow him. Daryl Box said this, Nothing in life should get in the way of responding to what God is doing through Jesus. Nothing in life should get in the way of our response to what God is doing through Jesus. And I want to give us an opportunity to respond to Jesus tonight. But before we do that, I want to take a moment now to sit, to listen to allow what Jesus is saying to sink in a bit. Maybe you'd like to close your eyes as you do this to concentrate better, but let us pause for a moment. I don't know what's resonated for you as your next step in being a follower rather than a fan of Jesus tonight. But as we're in an attitude of prayer, I wonder if I can pray with you if you're particularly feeling that Jesus is calling you to step up in one of these three areas. Maybe you feel that you need to answer Jesus' call to love Include and be generous to the poor, crippled, blind, and the lame. Maybe you feel your next step in being a follower of Jesus is having your eyes open on the lookout for those who are doing it tough. If you want to be filled with His love and more of a capacity to care for and support those who are struggling, I wonder 
If all of us have our eyes closed, if you would stand so I can pray with you. if you say these words in your heart. Dear Jesus, I hear your call and I want to follow you and model how you looked after the physically and spiritually poor, crippled, blind and lame. I pray that you will give me a generous and loving heart to be an agent of your grace and love in those lives that I come across. May you bring people along my path so that I can love and care for them as you first loved and cared for me. Amen. Or maybe tonight you need to repent of your excuses and posture yourself to eagerly wait His return. Maybe you've been meaning to take Jesus more seriously for a while now and in that moment Jesus whispered, now is the time. Now is the time. No one else needs to know what your excuses have been. They're just between you and Jesus. But if you feel that your next step in being a follower of Jesus tonight is to lay these things at His feet and eagerly wait His return, I wonder if that's you tonight with every eye closed. Would you be bold stand so I can pray with you. We can say these words in your heart. Dear Jesus, I'm sick of making excuses and from now on, I want to take you more seriously to put aside the ways of fandom and become a follower of you. I pray that you will protect me and lead me in the path that I know you've prepared for me and equip me for works of service for your glory. Amen. And maybe tonight you're sitting here and you've never really accepted Jesus' invitation before. Maybe you'd like to ask Jesus for his fulfillment in your life for the very first time or his fulfillment afresh. If you feel lost and decide to be found by Jesus tonight as your next step in being a follower of Jesus, with every eye closed, would you stand so I can pray with you? say these words in your heart. Dear Jesus, I recognize your presence with me right now and I know that in my heart I need you. I am lost and I need to be found by you. Jesus, I ask that you will be the fulfillment that I'm searching for and I desire to be a follower of you. Please continue to guide me, to teach me, and to show me your ways. Amen. I encourage you, if you prayed any of those prayers tonight, if you have missed the opportunity to stand and pray, then I encourage you not to let this moment pass. Don't let tonight pass.
fast. If Jesus has been prompting you to respond somehow tonight, can I encourage you to ask the person you came with to pray with you? Or you can ask me or anyone else on the platform to pray with you and we'd love to come and do that. But as we close the service now, I encourage you to stand with me. And we're going to praise and glorify our Lord Jesus Christ as we worship. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through the Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.